We are continuing in our journey called Because I Believe. We're exploring those connections between what we say we believe and the way that we really live. So we're trying to build bridges between the chasm that is a profession of faith and the way that we embody or live out the faith. And if you look at the front cover of your bulletin or brochure that we've handed out to you, you'll notice the back and forth because I believe pattern. Because I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, I will cherish life as a gift. Because I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, I will give priority and loyalty to Jesus. Because I believe he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, I will be available for God to surprise me. Back and forth with the roadmap of the Apostles' Creed guiding the way, we're trying to have faith become more sincere, more genuine to who we really are. What kind of difference and impact does faith really make? Now, we're going to get to that part of the creed today that says, and he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. Now, a little King James kind of lesson here. Quick is basically just a term for being alive. So turn to the person next to you and tell them that they're really quick this morning. <laughs> really quick. If you're slow, that means you're dead. That's what it means in this language. And I know that there's a little bit of a cringe factor to when we get to this part of the creed. He's going to come again to judge Many of us, whether it's explicit or implicit, we're like, man, this is the part of religion I don't like. I don't want this whole judge business. But before your defense mechanisms and walls go up too high, let's think about this for a little bit. Earlier this week, I was visiting one of our ministry partners that's called Covenant House. They work in the heart here of the Atlanta community, and they specialize and focus in on teenagers, on youth that have experienced the hardship of being homeless or who have run away. I was walking and getting a tour of the facility with Allison, who's the executive director of Covenant House, when she said this. She said that 20% of the students that they work with are victims of human trafficking. One in five of the children that come through those doors are victims of modern-day slavery. And there ought to be a part of us that as soon as we hear something like that, that gets a little upset, that says that there's something wrong with that, that there's something off kilter in our world, that there's something that needs to be fixed, that there's a broken part of our world that needs to be mended. It's something that we have said ever since we were on a schoolyard long ago. We would say, hey, that's not fair or that's not right. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what religion is your background, no matter what family of origin was like for you, we may differ in terms of what we think is fair or what we think is right. But as C.S. Lewis talks about, we all innately have a sense of that something is there. There is such a thing as fairness, that there is such a thing as rightness. And that just doesn't measure up. And so we all have this deep, deep longing for justice, for things to be restored. And if there is a thing called justice, there has to be someone who administers that justice. In our language, that's a judge. So it's not so much whether or not you and I believe that, hey, that judgment is a good thing or a bad thing. The real question 
Who is the one who's going to do the judging? And what are they like? And so I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to look at one of the famous passages that talks about coming again to judge. This is uh, the last lecture of Jesus. This is the last teaching of Jesus that we have before um, Jesus goes to the cross. And with this, I don't want you to miss the irony that here you have the story of Jesus' return as king and judge, and what began in obscurity is going to end in glory. And for the one who had no place to lay his head is now going to be the head of the human family. And the one who was thrown out of his own hometown is going to sit on heaven's throne. And the one who was wrongly condemned is going to be the one who is going to be the judge of all. For when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison to go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who were cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. It was a Tuesday, March 9th of 1999. It was around 1130 at night and I know exactly where I was. I was at the intersection of Bissonette and Richmond. It was late, I was tired, I had been on all day since early in the morning and I wanted nothing more than to go ahead and just to crawl into my bed and go to sleep. At the intersection of Bissonette and Richmond in Houston, Texas, there was one thing that you needed to know. You're not supposed to make a left-hand turn there. But it's 11.30 at night on a weeknight. And I'm sitting at this red light, knowing that if I go straight like I'm supposed to, it's going to add at least another five or seven minutes to my route. So I'm sitting at that red light, contemplating the justice of God. (laughs) When I look this way and I notice there are not any headlights or taillights as far as I can see. And then I look this way. 
and I see there are no headlights or no taillights. I look forward, I look in my rearview mirror. There is no one anywhere around me. And I remember what John Calvin said. He said, an unjust law should not be followed. <laughs> but being a good citizen, I actually put on my left-hand turn blinker and turned left, and I wasn't 50 yards down the road because the one thing that I had failed to see is apparently at the Quickie Mart, there was a police car. And I got pulled over, and this cop was all business. He didn't want to know my story. He didn't want to know what I did for a living. He didn't want to know any of that stuff. And so he just gives me a citation and tells me to be safe. Well, I'm a little frustrated by this. And then I look at the citation more closely. The first thing I notice is that my license plate is put down incorrectly. The second thing I notice is that my name is misspelled. How anybody could misspell Congressor, I'll never know. <laughs> and then the third thing that I noticed, and this was the real point, was on the citation, they not only tell you the date of the citation, they also go ahead and put, if you want to contest the ticket, in Texas, this is your court date. And I noticed that the court date was prior to, by two days, the date when I got the citation. In other words, I was supposed to appear in court to contest something that hadn't happened yet. I think I was in the matrix or something along those lines. So I call the courthouse and I end up finally getting my way through all the phone tree to a clerk and, and she's like, yeah, you were supposed to appear in court like four days ago. I'm like, no, you don't understand. Look at the citation. I couldn't have appeared in court because the actual event hadn't happened yet. And she's like, well, the computer says what the computer says and you were delinquent. You didn't show up in court that day so we could put a warrant out for your arrest. Logic was lost on this government bureaucrat. And she goes, I can't tell you what to do, but you probably need a lawyer. <laughs> so I hired a lawyer. I had seen one of those billboards, you know, if you need a lawyer, go here. So I went to one of those places and I met with one of the clerks for that law office. I asked to meet the attorney. He's too busy, can't meet with you. You just meet with us, you give us the paperwork. We reassign your court date and we'll see what happens. So I'm sitting there in a courtroom in Houston and the first thing I do when I'm sitting there is I'm looking around and I'm making sure, yep, there are no elders from the church here. <laughs> the second thing I was sure that the judge wasn't someone who was a member of the church. They call the docket, I'm on the docket. I don't even know what the lawyer looks like. And as soon as they call the docket, the lawyer kind of settles in next to me. I reach out to shake his hand and I kid you not, he did not shake my hand. He said, where's the check? <laughs> so I hand him the check and I said, do you want to know me? Do you want to know my story? Do you want to know what happened? And he's like, no, 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 I don't care about any of that. He says, just sit tight, which he did. They called me to come forward. They called the cop to come forward. The cop wasn't there, and so the judge just slapped the gavel down, and based on a technicality, I was a free man. But I learned a very important lesson, and that is this, if you're going to make an illegal left-hand turn, don't use your blinker. <laughs> Here I was with a judge that couldn't pronounce my name, and with a lawyer who really only wanted my money. 
And the reason that I tell you that story is, is, is that when we start talking about the concept of judgment, when we start eliciting what it means for us to think about justice, we cannot help but import whatever our experiences, our perceptions, our visions are of what justice is and what it has looked like for us. So many of you, when you, immediately you start talking about judgment or justice, you're going to think of things like this, like the Supreme Court building. Maybe you think that justice happens at a distance, that there's this vague group of people out there that make decisions that impact your life. Or maybe for you, your imagination has been shaped more and more by TV programs. So maybe you think of law and order when you think of justice. Not one of the spinoff shows, one of the originals. I asked our technical crew if they could play like the little dun-dun from Law and Order, but they couldn't do that on the spot. Or maybe for you, you wouldn't want to admit this, but maybe your conscience of justice and judgment is shaped by this lady right here. Maybe for you, it's Judge Judy. But no matter what your experience is, you import, as soon as you hear about justice and judgment, you have these experiences, these images that you bring to bear upon it. And this is true for a relationship with God. Maybe you, like James Bryant Smith, secretly think this about John 3:16 and 17. For God was so mad at the world that he sent his son to come down and tell them to shape up. That whosoever could get their act together would have eternal life. Indeed, God sent his son into the world to condemn it in order that the world might be saved through good works. But that's not what John 3:16 and 17 says, right? It was for God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him might have eternal life. And that God did not send his son into the world to what? It's on the screen. Condemn the world. And yet so many of us, our starting point is that we think that this whole concept of a relationship with God, this, we're, we're, we've got this fear-based, shame-based narrative that God is really here to shame us to condemn us when the very clear message of the gospel is that he's here to save us. So before you hear anything else from me, hear this. The judgment of God is good news. Let's see if we can see this in Matthew chapter 25, what we read today. The first thing I want you to notice in today's passage is that Jesus cares enough to judge. That there's something hidden in such plain sight here that's shocking that we totally miss when we read this passage. That here you have this heavenly cosmic courtroom scene. And I want you to imagine it. Like, imagine you are summoned before a judge. You go into the court. It looks like a court. It's all the things that you would think of with a court. And then the bailiff says, everybody rise. Everybody rises to their feet because the central figure of the justice moment is about to walk in, the judge. And when the judge walks in, he or she is not wearing the black robe. But instead, this figure walks into your courtroom, a dirty, smelly, happy shepherd. Would you be surprised in that moment? Would you feel like that was a little strange? There is a mixed metaphor at the heart of today's vision and story that Jesus tells, that the one who is going to be the judge of all is also the same one who is the shepherd, that the judge is the shepherd and the shepherd is 
the judge. And we know the richness from the Bible of what a shepherd is like. That like King David in Psalm 23, that because of our shepherd, that he provides for all of our needs, that we lack nothing. Then in John chapter 10, we know from the shepherd, we know that he's a good shepherd and that he's even willing to lay down his life for the sheep. And in Luke chapter 15, we know that once he knows the 99 are safe, he goes and he leaves the 99 in order to rescue the one. In other words, your judge is also your shepherd. That the one who provides for you is the same one who judges you. The second thing I think that we learn in today's story is that Jesus is close enough to judge. Raise your hand if you work with sheep and goats on an ongoing and daily and regular basis. How many of you have a lot of experience with sheep and goats? Okay, since you don't, let me do a little historical agricultural lesson for you. These are sheep and goats I want to put up on the screen here. This is what they look like. But interestingly enough, sheep and goats during the lifetime of Jesus, there are actually scholars that have done work with Bedouin tribes that actually can help us to rewind time to understand some of the nature of the parables and the stories of Jesus. Did you know that during the lifetime of Jesus, sheep and goats were very similar critters and they looked the same and that only a shepherd could probably tell the difference between a sheep and a goat. But sometimes you needed to separate them. Sometimes you needed to separate the sheep and the goats when it came to shearing because it was different. Or maybe when you separated the sheep and the goats, you needed to do so because goats don't do as well in the cold as the sheep do. I want you to imagine this for a minute. Have you ever tried to separate livestock into two separate groups? That like the minute you get one thing moving over here, they move back over here. And so you can see there's no way to separate sheep and goats like by just going. No, it's a hands-on, full-contact sport. I mean, you've got to get in there. You've got to get dirty. You've got to be willing to push and to keep them apart. In other words, the same one who judges you is also the same one who is near to you. You are not judged by someone who is way up on high, keeping you at arm's length. The third thing that I notice in this passage is that Jesus is wise enough to judge you. Here's what I mean by that. Most of the time when we judge things, we do so on limited information. We look at a lot of externals. A lot of the times we judge people all the time based on the way that they're dressed or what their job is or what part of town that they live in. And while we may look at the outward appearance, we know that God looks much deeper within. Did you notice in today's passage that the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous, the difference between those who were the sheep and those who were the goats, the difference were the way that they treated the least of these. One thing to just be abundantly clear, this passage is not promoting works righteousness. We believe that scripture interprets scripture. You cannot read the entirety of the New Testament and say, okay, so if you do these things, then you are saved. That's not what this passage is saying. 
What this passage is saying is that one of the clearest indications of someone who really trusts and follows Jesus is the way that they care for people who can't do anything for you. Pure generosity as a lifestyle. It doesn't cause salvation, it it reveals salvation. But did you notice in the text, in both verses 37 and in verses 34, that both the sheep and the goats, both the righteous and the unrighteous, were surprised? That both of them were like, when did we see you? It's not about this group is able to recognize Jesus and this group doesn't recognize Jesus. That's not what this is about. It's about those who served even when they didn't know Jesus was even there. I want to introduce you to a guy by the name of Aaron Tucker. Aaron lives up in Connecticut, and he had fallen on really hard times. He had just gotten released from prison. He had served for just shy of two years on a weapons charge. He was trying to get his life back together. While he was in prison, he got his GED. He started serving some people in the prison to try to help them to be able to, he was tutoring them to help them to get their degree. And he wanted more than anything to turn his life around. And he was extra motivated because right before he went into prison, he had a son. And so prison was a very difficult experience of him being separated. He was in a halfway house for a while. And in a halfway house, on his way out, he was able to get some clothes. His most prized possession was a dress shirt that fit just right. When he got out, he knew he needed a job. He was taking a bus. He had only $2 in his pocket. And he was on his way to a job interview at a barbecue joint. And he knew that this job was really important to him, that he needed to start right away. Well, while the bus was on its way, there was another car who careened into a tree and the car flipped over and immediately caught on fire. If there was a guy who needed to just kind of keep his head down low and just kind of stay out of it because he didn't want to cause any trouble, it was this guy. But instead, he got him to stop the bus, got off the bus, ran over to the car in flames, helped to pull the driver to safety, and removing his most prized possession, his dress shirt. He wrapped up the bleeding wounds of the victim of the crash. Needless to say, he didn't make that job interview. Not that day. But he did later. Here's a picture of what he looked like when he finally got to interview for that job. Whatever you did to the least of these, you did unto me, Jesus said. This is the last thing that Jesus will give as a lecture before he goes to the cross. And the same one 
who talked about being naked and in need and imprisoned is the one who takes on that for our sake. He's the one who goes to the cross for you and for me. The Bible goes as far as to say is that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. That we might not come to this situation with any righteousness of our own, but with his own blood, he covers us. He cares for us. He's close to us. And he knows our hearts. There's a youth director by the name of Josiah who does a lot of spiritual formation with students. And when he takes them to a retreat setting, one of the first activities that he does is he goes to a dry erase board and he writes the word God up on the dry erase board. And he asks the students, he said, first reaction, no filter, just when you hear the word God, what comes to mind? And he starts writing things up there and it's pretty common what comes up. Angry, distant, mean, powerful. And then after he writes a bunch of things up there, he goes to the other part of the dry erase board and he writes up the word Jesus. And he says, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Compassion, kind, forgiving, loving. And with those two images up on the dry erase board, he asks them to open their Bibles and they go to John chapter 14, verse nine, where Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And they look at those two different images. There is nothing that we see in Jesus that is not of God. And the most accurate portrayal we have of God is revealed and embodied in Jesus. There is a judge. There is a day of reckoning. Justice will be done. But it will be personal. It will be close. And you will be known. And it will be good. But I don't want to explain away the tension in this passage. If you read Matthew, Matthew chapter 25 and you're not sitting up a little more, then you haven't really read it. And so I want to share with you in closing what I heard someone share with me in regards to this passage. And that's this. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Let us pray. Our gracious and loving Father, our Lord and Shepherd Jesus Christ, forgive our confusion, God, of your distance, of us thinking that you were at arm's length and seeing judgment as some sort of cold and impersonal and technical process. We thank you for who you are. 
that we have nothing to fear. And Lord, I pray that you will mobilize our faith and out of true generosity that may spill out and pour out for others, particularly those who are considered least. God, I pray for anybody here who needs to have a radical reorientation of their understanding of who you are and that they have unwittingly and unknowingly imported images of the world and have misunderstood you. We pray for your reign to come. And we pray for justice to be done. And we thank you because you were the one administering that justice. That it will be good. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.